Hello and welcome to another Note Up one-on-one. I'm Rod Vag, and today I have Trevor Livingston. Trevor, why don't you introduce yourself for us? Hey, my name is Trevor Livingston and I'm a principal architect at Homeway. Uh, I joined about eight or nine months ago and, and previous to Homeaway, I was at PayPal and worked on the Kraken JS team. Cool. So why don't we back right up and talk about how you got into programming? So do you want to tell us your journey to get to PayPal in particular? Sure. I've, I actually was pretty uh, late to programming. I, I probably didn't get my first computer until I was about 16. And that's when I started trying to develop web pages with you know, clashing colors and, and, and blinking text, which is, of course, the bread and butter of an early web developer. But where I, I really started to get into programming, uh, oddly enough, was in multi-user dungeons, which were you know, also called MUDs or early text-based multiplayer games. I was just really fascinated by those and, and started programming in LPC because I was really excited about creating worlds and working on like you know, little wandering monsters and combat and those sorts of things. That was probably my actually my really first programming language. It's also kind of the first love of programming that I had encountered. Around that same time, I was actually working at a, a small company by the name of Deja.com here in Austin. It was specialized in news groups and then eventually kind of expanded into, you know, product search pages and ultimately was purchased half of it. The data side was purchased by Google and the other half of it was purchased by a company called Half.com, which was eventually acquired by eBay. And many of us kind of moved on. They, they kept a few employees that they moved out to um, Silicon Valley and, and I moved on to another local company called Vignette which uh, specialized in content management systems, was a, a Java shop, and that's where I probably really started doing a lot of heavy Java programming and continued to do that over the years. I programmed Java probably a total of maybe, you know, you know between you know, 15 and 20 years of my career. I was at, at Vignette for about three or four years. I moved on uh, to IBM from there. I did some kind of things in between two different stints at IBM and then eventually moved on to work at PayPal, where I was hired to help work on the adoption of a new Java framework that was you know, based on Spring MVC, which was considered really, really modern at the time, especially compared to the, the monolithic C stack that eBay and, and PayPal were based on. That's where I wound up and where I quickly encountered Bill Scott, Eric Toth, and Jeff Harrell, who were... Netflix transplants who had come over to start working on a top secret project, which would ultimately be known as the Kraken project, which was Node.js at PayPal. And Node.js was really uh, just kind of meant for, or, or kind of presumably meant for prototyping Dust.js views and then dropping those views into Spring applications. However, you know, as we all know, Node.js went on to be much more than a prototyping tool at, at PayPal. It became the standard way that all of PayPal developed web applications. That's kind of what brings us to today, where I, I worked at PayPal for about five years, most of the time which was spent actually working on the Kraken team and JavaScript. So did you, did you get a formal education in computer science or anything? No, I actually never completed my degree. I'm unschooled for the most part. I, I went to a little bit of first grade, a little bit of second grade, and then there was a gap between second grade and college. So I, I eventually 
entered college when I was around 16 years old and then kind of was probably due to my unschooling background a little bit unprepared for formal education. So I kind of started and stopped over, over the course of several different years, but ultimately never really completed it. I was studying computer science for the most part when I was in college, but didn't really complete that degree. Yeah, that's not a not an unfamiliar story at all. You did mostly on the job learning with like, for example, Java, you went from programming MUDs to programming Java, which is no small jump. So that was just simply somebody threw you at that project and you learned it on the job? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting is that part of the reason that I didn't really get invested in school was I was having so much fun in the kind of the early, you know, the, the first dot com bubble. And just, you know, I was exposed to so much more than I was getting exposed to in school. And when I was working at Deja.com and, you know, programming MUDs on the side, I uh, was primarily working in, in HTML and Perl. There was, you know, embedded Perl for dynamic pages. And really my first actually experience as a, you know, UI application developer was to, to be just thrown into the deep end. As there was a, a search page redesign and I had never really worked on a, a real project before. And the team lead just said, hey, uh, this, this is what it needs to look like and showed me a PDF and said, you know, it needs to be done in, you know, a couple of weeks, go do it. And of course, you know, I was terrified and, you know, stayed up late a lot trying to figure out what the hell was, I was doing. But that's really kind of how I it was very much trial by fire learning how to do that. And really from there, I just kind of started getting, a, you know, a lot more curious about different, you know, programming languages. And, you know, I picked up Java kind of as a result of some of the interactions I was doing at, at Deja and some of the kind of tooling that we were building internally. And then when I when I went to Vignette, then that's when it became full-time. And it was once again kind of a, uh, a little bit of a trial by fire, working on some projects that were a little bit, working with a little bit of Java and then eventually owning a tool chain that was, you know, entirely based in Java and really just kind of getting thrown at that and having to own it. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean's easy-to-use API makes integrating tools like Jenkins and Terraform simple. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. DigitalOcean community articles provide guidance on a wide array of topics that help developers build better and faster infrastructure. Many of the Node.js packages for different Linux distros are actually built and tested on DigitalOcean VMs by Node.js and NodeSource. Get $10 credit when you sign up for a new account through the link do.co slash nodeup. As an added bonus, every time a new listener signs up, another randomly selected old listener gets a bonus $25 credit. Just to dwell on the education thing for a minute. Now, you've because you've been around a lot now, you, you know, your experience is pretty deep and you've been heavily involved in enterprise. Presumably you've been involved in a lot of hiring decisions. I know you've done a lot of people managing what do you think is the relevance of formal education today in our industry? Does it have much relevance at all? You know, I don't personally see the relevance today with the, the amount of free education that can be had online, both through more you know formalized material that's been made available by universities, as well as just the, you know, 
amazing amount of content that you can just find on, on projects from GitHub and tutorials online. And, and just if, if you want to get into this industry, it's so easy to learn. That being said, I, I think that there was probably a little bit of a struggle and probably even an ongoing struggle today to adjust to structure for me, which I think that you know, a formal education can kind of help with it. It does enforce a certain structure to to your learning and to your project completion that you don't get by just kind of hacking it out on your own. But as far as as far as the education thing, I, I didn't really get anything out of college. I always learned more outside of outside of school than I did inside school. Yeah, I having experienced the hiring process and, and you know, just knowing a lot of people, it seems to me that education in our industry tell is more about telling you about what the person is interested in like you look at a resume and they might have an education in something completely different and not so much about what the person knows because what we know we pick up from either on the job or just through our interest yeah totally i when i see a resume pretty much the last thing i look at is is where they went to school Uh, i think that's you know obviously heavily uh, biased do due to my own background, but I've, I've even told uh, recruiters, you know, I'm not really interested in, in, you know, finding people from, you know, well-known schools. That's not what's interesting to me. What's really interesting to me is, you know, show me their GitHub repos, you know, show me which communities they belong to, show me, you know, their activity on, on websites like Stack Overflow. I want to see how this person has made themselves a part of a community and contributed back to it. Because I think that translates a lot better to how they're going to interact in a corporate environment than what school they went to or what degree they got. Right, yeah. Now, you're in Austin. Now, Austin is an interesting place to me because I, I've been, spent some time there and you know, spent plenty of time in you know, San Fran and surrounds. And it seems to me like a, a mini Silicon Valley in that there's a ton of creativity and there's a ton of tech happening over there. But it's... It's within a completely different environment. It's you know the, the Texas, and you know it's away from the the stuff that happens on the West Coast. Can you talk a bit about the Austin scene and why you're still there, why you like it there? Yeah, Austin is really an interesting place. I think that one of the kind of the strangest things about Austin is its desire to imagine itself as a much smaller city. You know, that there used to be a saying that, you know, that a lot of decisions that were made in Austin were because they, they thought that if, you know, if you don't build it, then, you know, people won't come. And of course, we all know that people came anyway. And as a result, we've we've suffered a lot of infrastructure issues and, and generally just being unprepared for the massive influx that we've seen uh, of people and, and companies. I think all this has kind of resulted in this, this kind of strange a situation where we have this fairly kind of sleepy college town that's transformed itself into kind of a tech hub for at least the local region. And it, it is kind of a silicon, a little mini Silicon Valley, but it has a distinctly different feel to it. There's a lot of interesting work happening here. There are a lot of interesting startups. There's some very big companies that have presences here. And obviously, like growing and vibrant tech scene, but at the same time, the tech scene itself is is a little bit more laid back. It's a little bit quieter. There doesn't seem to be that kind of palpable buzz that you feel when you go to the valley. You know, really for better or for worse, right? There's when I was working at PayPal, I was really kind of thought it was really amazing that a lot of the people that were working there were 
tended to have a, a little bit of a better work-life balance. They, you know, they came in, they got their work done, they didn't spend a lot of time playing video games or, you know, in the cafeteria, and they went home to their families, and, and they, that was a really important aspect of, of their work and, their, and where they chose to work. And so there is a, you know, a lot of uh, similarities between kind of what's happening and been happening in California and what's happening in Austin, but also some kind of market differences. I think that part of the reason that I've never moved out to the Bay Area and I've been invited, you know, many, many times is there's multiple reasons. I have, you know, I have local family here, but also I find that I do like the the general feel of things here. I, I think that it's, you know, I, I do kind of like how it's it's been fairly laid back. Of course, I, I hate the traffic and I hate a lot of the decisions around infrastructure, but I actually uh, really like the heat. A lot of people think that's crazy, but I think that California is way too cold. I always grew up in the heat. I love I love the the blazing hot summers, and that's actually been something that's been really surprisingly important to me. And my, my family, of course, would disagree with me. They they, they don't particularly like the heat. You're, you're secretly a reptile. That's what you're trying to say to us, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. So I, I am cold blooded, and I need I need the to warm myself in the sun. But then, uh, other than that, I mean. You know, have have you looked at housing prices in the Bay Area? Yeah, well, that's that's what I was going to say. That the affordability is 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 hugely different in Austin compared to San Fran. I was I was actually going to ask you whether you think that people who are thinking about moving out to the Bay Area for their career might consider Austin as a legitimate alternative for building their career and their their life in tech. Yeah, you know, I. You know, I've I've had this discussion with people before. Uh, usually, you know, often you know more junior, younger candidates who have this desire to move out to the Bay Area because they think it's going to you know provide them a lot of different opportunities. And and honestly, I mean, it will provide them many opportunities. But what I've tried to impress upon people, you know, many times is that kind of goes back to a conversation I had once with a recruiter who was really kind of pushing hard on on me moving out there. Is is at the time I said, like, look, you know, I have, you know, one job, my wife doesn't have to work, I have two kids, I actually, you know, have two houses, one of, by the way, you know, message to anybody who wants to move to Austin, I'm really trying to sell one of them. So please, please come buy it from me. And I'm able to, you know, live comfortably. It's not a struggle for me, right? Whereas, can you have that lifestyle? as easily in, in the Bay Area? Can you, you know, move out there and, you know, be guaranteed that you, you can buy a house and that your, you know, your, your partner is going to be able to, you know, be a stay at home if they need to be. And, you know, and you can still have kids that go to, you know, great schools and you don't necessarily need to enroll them in private schools to, to, to get them well-educated. So it, it's interesting because I, I think that it's something that people come to a little bit later, is especially as people start to have families, they start to really uh, be a little bit more impacted. I think there's a willingness for younger, hungry, ambitious engineers especially to say, yeah, I'll, I'll live in an apartment with six other people if I can be out there. Whereas uh, I think for me, I, I've really, that, that's become something that doesn't sound really interesting to, uh, you know, to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think my advice would be to check it out because it is a really interesting spot. And if you don't mind the heat, I'm not a big fan of the heat these days, but yeah, I, I like Austin. Whereas if you go to San Fran, you, you just, it's, it's cold all the time, but also it's extremely unpredictable for weather. So if, if weather is an important factor for you, then take that into account. You will you in, invest less in hoodies living in Austin. Yeah. Right. 
let's back up to PayPal because the, the PayPal story around Kraken.js is, I think, one of the key formative stories for, for Node's maturity. I, I know a lot of people listening to this may not have heard of it, but I think it, it when PayPal really got on board with Node, this was at the beginning of Node getting its teeth into enterprise and PayPal's willingness to dive right in and also be, as a company, a thought leader, I think was was huge and really cemented Node's place. So can you talk about how Node went from a prototyping tool to a key part of what PayPal does now? I mean, essentially replacing everything within PayPal with Node now. How did that happen? Honestly, I think that probably the intention was always to use Node when you are investing in a new technology or even you know, just investigating a new technology at a large you know, public company, is you can't do that haphazardly. You have to be able to pilot it. You have to be able to get some data on, on its impact. And although I think that many of us you know, felt like this was a, a new big thing and it was really gonna change how people built software, you know, I, I think there were a lot of open questions about it. So coming in as a as a as primarily a prototyping tool allowed us to really look at it, kind of feel out the different cases that we were you know going after. Ultimately, what kind of cemented it as a as a viable alternative to what we were doing in in Java and Spring was this you know somewhat apples to apples comparison that was run when they we're working on this wallet application. So the, the, the wallet application was being, uh, there's a team developing uh, this new version of, of the PayPal wallet app. And this was of course, you know, just being written in Java and Spring and Spring Webflow. A smaller team that was interested in, and really kind of, you know, a couple of people from wor- working on interested in working on on node and javascript and trying out this this new tool and really but primarily led by eric and jeff who who wrote the kind of the majority of this were basically doing this in parallel to the 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 new wallet applications uh, development and at the end of this development they just kind of looked at this comparison they said like how many people did this take to develop you know the java application versus the node application you know how many you know how large is the code base? What is the performance like? And a couple of other different metrics where it was really clear that developing it in Node was, you know, much faster. It was a leaner process. You know, it was, you know, there was less, you know, context switching between, you know, jumping in, you know, to Java, back into JavaScript. There was, you know, very, very low startup times where it was just, you know, you would be able to bounce the server just so quickly and, and be able to see your changes. And then obviously having um, eventually kind of moving on to things like library loading and, and the like. So it was, it was, they were able to really see this significant paradigm shift for, for developers. And that's when it became kind of this, you know, internal success of, Hey, let's, let's move to this. Let's, you know, let's start, you know, a, a broader scale development and started having multiple teams start to spin up on it. Of course, you know what was required. There was obviously a, a lot of additional work because it was it was much just you know kind of uh, glued together roughly, and a lot of further development needed to be made to make it you know productionalized and op- operationalized for live traffic. But I, I think that we really recognized the potential at that point. 
Right. Yeah. No, I, I've I've heard similar stories in other enterprises where they've they've done side by side projects and nodes just come out as the uh, the clear winner in terms of productivity, uh, particularly productivity. Actually, do you know if was that a difficult discussion to have because there was a lot of investment in, in Java at PayPal. Was it was that difficult to let go of, or was it simply a business decision of hey, this is we can't not do this? Well, I, I think it was really difficult for the Java guys. You know, there, there was some, you know, obviously, you know, resistance. You know, and that's that's pretty normal. I think a lot of people get very personal about their technology decisions, and then there were a lot of, you know, very senior people who were, you know, on the Java side of things who were also very open-minded and who were able to say. Yeah, you know, let's give this a go. I, I think that overcoming kind of the cultural and political issues was a, was a, a major, not stumbling block, but something that we definitely needed to get over. And it wasn't something that we were able to just simply say, oh, well, you know, we we measured it, we we looked at it, and it was better, right? What what was really critical was having the president of the company who had faith and had empowered Bill uh, Bill Scott to help change the way that we were doing user experience at PayPal and empower him to do it potentially by the, the means that he found necessary, right? And, and, and having that empowerment and having leadership that was bought in to making progress made it a lot easier. We were really empowered to help make that decision and to, to help push that. That, that could support really continued through the you know, first years where we could continue to push on making changes and that was very, very critical to making it happen at a, at a large company like that. I think there was also, from my understanding, there was a recognition as well that PayPal had backed itself into a corner with its architecture in Java, with the massive monolith. And part of Bill's role was really to make the company a little bit more agile again. Is, is that right? Yes, absolutely. So really, I, I wouldn't say that the journey was ever to just bring Node.js to, to PayPal. I think that the, really the journey was to, to, to revolutionize user experience at PayPal. Node.js became the obvious choice there because of its agility, but really the goals focus more on how do we empower rapid development, rapid prototyping, going from ideation to production in a reduced amount of time and being able to adjust to, to changes, be able to A-B test and quickly and get out the door faster. So that whole time to cycle was a big goal there. And where we were with the Java platform was this world where we had Spring MVC applications that were we were able to break those up into you know kind of distinct distinct applications that were not necessarily entirely monolithic, almost a monolithic development process where there was standardized core libraries that were written in JSP that were basically uh, you know styled based on the style guidelines and what have you, and and being able to quickly roll out changes to design and as we develop new goals was really difficult with a very you know kind of standardized and rigid system that was centralized like that. Bringing in things like uh, JavaScript templating languages not only improved the uh, speed of those pages, but also allowed us to start looking at componentizing things a little bit better. And, and you can't, it's very difficult to componentize in UI in Java when you're dealing with Java and XML and property files and these other things from the back end. And then you've got, even if you're using JavaScript templates or whatever in the front end, these two things don't go together well. 
And it became very important to figure out how do we break down these experiences into components and how do we get more agile about how we develop them. Uh, yeah. Now, Kraken is the, the key open source presence for PayPal. So Kraken.js is, I, I don't even know if you can call it a framework. I'll get you to talk about some of the architecture there, but the thing that's interested me about Kraken is that it's it's actually really node-like and it's really impressive for a company like PayPal to come out with something that feels very nodey. It's not just some a re-implementation of you know monolithic architectures or some Java stuff in in Node. It actually is something that is very modular. You know, it's, it hasn't got a ton of opinions. It's you know, it's got these enough opinions to get you going. But you you know, you piece this thing together. Was was this architecture intentional, or was it, or was it something that was derived over time with experience, or some sort of a happy accident? Kraken Kraken.js is not. It, yeah, you're correct. It, it is not a framework. It is it is more a collection of tools to help make building applications in a more consistent, predictable way easier. And, and that's really kind of the key there. It's very easy to pick up a framework like Express, which is just super straightforward and easy to use and build an app, but scaling that application development across many different teams and many different projects in a consistent fashion is is really quite difficult when you're just doing it from, you know, code or, you know, copying and pasting because, you know, as a as an enterprise you have operational concerns, you need you have proprietary integrations that you need with things like, you know, you know, potentially logging or security or what have you. So looking for a way to abstract out a little bit of the internal versus common framework needs and allow you to kind of, through configuration, drive the application's development and adding in these kind of these proprietary concerns as part of that configuration is, is really kind of was the, the thinking there. And really the credit goes to Eric who, aside from being a really amazing engineer, has always had a real purity of thought around how software should be developed that seems to just really come naturally to him that he wants to develop software that is, is very open source ready. That, you know, the, the, the correct abstractions are there, that, that, you know, the choices that were made using callbacks versus promises, which eventually came along, down to just making it try to feel like what the node core was doing, right? To make when you look at the syntax of of you know some of the Kraken code, what you know you see the same kind of syntax styles and patterns echoed in and projects like Node Core. I, I think that he really tried to apply a craft to it that I, I think that is how I feel like I learned how to do JavaScript Node.js development. I was pretty rough when I came into the team. And hadn't spent a lot of time with JavaScript beyond. I, I had written a, a couple of Node.js projects that were written very much like Java. And he just kind of through example, being able to kind of see the the craft that he applied to the Kraken project in its very early days, really shaped how I started to develop code as well. So really, the, I think the credit to that that design and that simplicity really goes to him there. Cool. Now, is, is Eric, that, there's a, there's a, they're a team, aren't they? Um, Bill Scott, Eric Toth. And Jeff Harrell, are they still all together at PayPal? Well, they aren't necessarily together, but they all are still at PayPal. So the Bill is, has moved on a little while ago, a couple of years ago, to uh, go on to lead the next-gen commerce team, Venmo. He actually just recently moved to New York to be closer to Venmo. 
and a lot of the different consumer engineering parts of the org, if I, if I recall. And Eric is chief architect of consumer engineering and Venmo engineering. And Jeff is senior director for payments and payment products. They've all remained there. But they're, they're, they're rising the ranks and the, 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 I guess the trust that PayPal has, has invested in them is really testament to the success of the work that they did uh, early on with Node, isn't it? Absolutely. Unfortunately for PayPal, they've lost you. So you moved on to HomeAway. Can you talk a bit about that journey? You, you, did, you did a talk recently at Node Summit, and it was very interesting looking at the, the last year at HomeAway. It sounds like it's been a, a, a radical journey almost in terms of re-architecting and rebuilding. Was that opportunity what, what drew you to HomeAway? Yes, in part. So I've known some people who worked at HomeAway for a while, and, and they had kind of, you know, courted me on on you know coming over and, and helping out many different you know times it was just kind of little just lunches and discussions about hey why don't you come and and build stuff with us and you know, I'd always push back because honestly I was really happy at PayPal and and I was having a great time for really a long time you know after a while is is uh, not only had Node.js really planted itself into PayPal to the point where it was just kind of you know maintenance mode for the most part I was always in a, the satellite office, which was fine when I was doing a lot of just kind of independent contribution of, of code and working very closely with kind of a small team over Slack. As I wanted to kind of expand my role and, and do new things, I found that a little bit hampered by being on a satellite office. This is the struggle that many people understand is, is it can be very hard when HQ is in an entirely different state. I started really to think about kind of, you know, what were my choices out there and, and, and HomeAway I knew was beginning to invest in Node.js. They had started to, to build a team and, and to really look at it as a, their next gen solution. And I really kind of saw this opportunity not only to potentially be involved with that and, and, and bring my experience to that, but to also help that movement through, I don't know if I mentioned this, but, but HomeAway is, was acquired by Expedia a little over a year ago. Expedia owns many different brands so like Hotels.com and Agencia and several others. I, I kind of saw this as an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we made Node.js work at scale at PayPal. And if we can make Node.js work uh, scale at HomeAway, then what's to stop it from going potentially spreading to these other brands and this, within the same company to where we can really optimize development for many, many different people at an even broader scale and just kind of be able to take this, not as initially a recipe, but just as this kind of this practice of, of introducing Node.js as a, as a web application technology and getting people onboarded onto it and productive. I kind of saw it as, a, for me personally, as this, as this really interesting opportunity that I could get involved in. And it seemed like the time was right, so I, I decided to jump ship and come over here. And, and has your time been about developing new applications at Homeway, or has it been a re-architecting process? Well, the first thing I found out that is that as a principal architect, my, my role was, my, my scope really exploded. I suddenly had way, way too many things to do and way too much to think about. And the whole question of, of, of Node.js and web applications became a small part of all of that. And there was also a really amazing, very smart team already making amazing progress into this. So what my role has really been is to ensure that it's successful from an organizational perspective, from a kind of a re-architecting perspective. We, 
you know, we have a lot of different things going on here. We are moving kind of from a private data center to a, a public cloud platform. We are, you know, trying to move from away from Java application development to Node.js application development. We're trying to change how we go from monolithic services to microservices. There is a lot of different things going on that are, are very exciting. And so a lot of my participation has been in, in you know, kind of a, applying the things that I've, I've known about, that I've learned about, you know, scaling application development, things like being configuration driven and being more unopinionated and, and providing good, you know, reasonable constraints and things like that. And just kind of my learnings from PayPal, really, and helping to kind of apply that to the Node.js efforts here. And occasionally I still get to write code, which is which is great. But then also to things like patterns like looking at how we do orchestrate data for UI components and introducing new things like GraphQL and architectural patterns around how we can share GraphQL types and resolvers and these kind of things. And there was some, some of that at Node Summit that I talked about a, a little bit more from an architecture perspective and less from a boots on the ground perspective. Sneak is a London and Israeli company building developer-focused security tools, primarily focused on securing open source code. One in seven NPM packages carries a known vulnerability, and roughly 83% of Node.js shops are using vulnerable packages. Sneak checks your dependencies against their open source vulnerability database, and then helps you find, fix, prevent, and respond to any vulnerabilities in your application. If you're using GitHub, the fix can be as simple as an automated pull request that Sneak submits with the necessary fixes. You can easily integrate Sneak into a CI system like Travis or Jenkins to make sure your application is monitored continuously. Open source projects are free to monitor, and there's also a free 14-day trial for your private code. Find out more at snyk.io slash node. So in terms of modern architecture, there's, there's, there's a lot of questions I want to dive into here about modern architecture because I, I see some of the stuff you're going through as, as being very reflective of shifts in our industry. Uh, one of those things is this shift from talking about applications to talking about components. And so this whole UI experience thing is broken down into components of the experience. And those components are sort of, they've got the, the stack depth to them. It's not just a, you know, a, a layer they're, they're cross-cutting things rather than thinking about applications now in terms of, you know, you, you put the bit at the bottom and then you build a bit on top of it. You're actually thinking about these components that go all the way through. Would you say that, that that's a legitimate trend that we're seeing now or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it depends on the company, it depends on the project, but as we start to have these increasingly complex web applications that are there, you start to see that you know you do have these cross-cutting needs across different experiences within that application ecosystem where you have to approach it from a component-based thinking process, right? You you need to think about how how do I not rewrite this every time? How do I how do I make it easier to you know share this code? What's really interesting is that just as you do node development in general and you start getting introduced to modules and that that kind of philosophy of do one thing and do it well and and actually breaking out these libraries into smaller pieces that really kind of is reflected in how we're building applications including the the ui right and that's that's also driven by some of the tools on the front end isn't like react is the obvious example there of it encourages you to think in a in a modular or a componentized way 
is that reflective of the node style and is that why we're seeing the move there or are we, are we just doing it because we want to be more more modular? You know, I, I think it's partially informed by the node style, but I, I think that this sort of thing tends to arise from the need to uh, insulate development from change as well, be able to share code without, you know, share code easily without making it brittle. When you have systems which rely on monolithic or, you know, kind of single point of failures, you wind up with fairly brittle ways of sharing that code base. If you have UI components that talk to essentially backends for front ends that are running, basically serving, serving data to these UI components, it really becomes difficult to understand how changes that you may make to your services may affect applications downstream and who may be leveraging those, those services. So I think that the complexity of development today has given rise to this this need to like break things down into their more you know component parts. Yeah, the, the the complexity of what we're building on for the web these days is just it's mind blowing when you th- when if you step back ten years when you think about what we're doing today compared to back then, you know, it's just amazing that we cope at all <laughs> with the complexity. So so HomeAway has gone to the, the stats that you presented at at Node Summit. You've really ramped up Node development, and is that is that driven by the small components and services that back them? Is that is that what's happening, or are you replacing a lot of a big chunks of the technology stack? Yeah, so there there is a lot of different ways to try to attack the problem of of replatforming, and especially made difficult by the fact that HomeAway is trying to change on so many different fronts at the same time. But really, what is what is driving a lot of this development is these. We have a uh, this fantastic design lab, and these you know UX designers and their work around researching you know user behavior and and how they pain points of interacting with their site is kind of given rise to this really kind of full redesign of 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 how we both serve our travelers as well as the people who who are owners who are renting out their properties. As part of that we need to get there quickly right we've we've changed our we're changing our business model we're trying to become global very rapidly and we're trying to present people with these much much better experiences and and to try to get there you know it's it's helped drive a lot of the the work around node and rapid application development there but it, but also the, there's this need to be able to take older legacy stacks and and essentially reskin them, you know, in some instances to make it look okay. And there's there's a lot of difficulty there because sometimes you can't just simply throw away an entire application that is taking a lot of traffic and that you're learning a lot from and have a good revenue stream from and then just say, okay, well, we're just going to go rewrite it and then just wholesale replace it, right? It, it needs to be done sometimes in pieces. It sometimes needs to be ramped very slowly. You need to learn from it. And, some, and sometimes not at all either as well. I, I've, I know of some companies that cannot get rid of their, you know, the very back end of their services because of legacy technology reasons that are just too difficult to attack. So sometimes you just have to accept the fact that you've got these legacy components that you need to reskin. I guess is a good word for it. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, what I've learned the hard way that just as you clearly have that you can't get it all. You know, you're you're going to have to make the best choices you can, and then you're gonna you're end up living with things for a very very long time. And how much of this is driven by, do you think, the need to be agile in the marketplace? Because I, I, as I imagine, HomeAway is in a very competitive marketplace. There's a lot going on in that space now, and and being agile and being able to adapt to changes in the market and 
the competitive changes that, that happen around the companies operating there. Is is that is that what what is pushing a lot of the technology changes, or is it simply something more simple like you know wanting to be modern? It's absolutely based on on the business needs. Although you know engineers are always going to want to have the bright and shiny tools. Really, what's driving the projects here are these requirements that we have to serve in a competitive marketplace. That we have, you know, very obvious competitors and, and companies like Airbnb, and we need to serve on a global scale. Not just when you have a private data center, it's very difficult to serve globally. And so moving to public cloud is, is, you know, an important strategy there. Being able to test and experiment, having a great A-B testing platform and being able to learn very rapidly about the changing needs of your customers and how they interact with your site and how your experience affects that is critical to driving the business. So when you look at a lot of the other technologies, uh, particularly for building user experiences, there's just nothing as as fast, as easy to, to break down into components and to test in isolation than Node.js and front ends like you know, view technologies like React and, and so forth. It's, it's just so much more efficient to do it to do it in. So that's that's what's really driven our decisions, even about things like adopting React, is not just how we, you know, we hear great things about React, it's, it's that it fits our component strategy. We make most of our technology choice based on what it provides us from a goals perspective. In terms of engineering culture, how, how much has the Node style really changed the way that engineers operate in HomeAway? Have, have you successfully brought in the, this concept of inner source that was championed so heavily, or it still is championed very heavily by PayPal, by the likes of Denise Cooper? Is that operating functionally at HomeAway? You know, it's a little bit slow, slower going. It's very interesting because we've had, we've had teams that have adopted the newer stack and have on their own gotten involved. And it's been really amazing to see pull requests submitted back to kind of internal core, core team frameworks and to see people come in and say, I'm going to help out with this feature that is broadly needed because it's affecting me today and I'm just going to pitch in. One of the actually the amazing, amazing things about the engineering culture at Humway generally is this kind of one team mentality around let's help each other out. Right, is that we we're all trying to do the same thing. Let's let's make sure we pitch in when we need to. That was really a kind of amazing thing to see when I when I came here is that 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 culture just existed naturally for the most part, and that moving to kind of a more inner sourceable technology is actually just enabled it a little bit more. We're starting to see a lot more inner source contribution. What we're we're not seeing a lot of of teams building modules and sharing them themselves because. I think that we still have a lot of immature teams. It's very it's still a you know new technology. The the skill set is not broad enough. The focus is more on on not only learning these technologies but shipping their product features. So that's something that I'm expecting to see more of, but is is I'm starting to see the the signs of. One of the barriers I think to successful internal open source culture, aka inner source. Is the the business silo challenge where you have different departments or just just different responsibility groups that are trying to get to their ultimate goal of de- delivering what they were asked to deliver, and then, and then hassling them with this need to be able to share code internally is is like 
how does that deliver on my ultimate goal? It's you know that, that's a real challenge I think for a lot of companies because you're asking them to do something that doesn't slot naturally into what they have been asked to achieve. Is that a challenge for you? Because it sounds like there's a culture that already there that might be working against that, or do you see that that's uh, something that you have to constantly chip away at? You know, it, it is still something to chip away at because I, I think that one of the the challenges in you know developing a an inner source culture is is visibility. Just like you mentioned, is that if you're a development manager and one of your engineers is is working on on something and you don't understand how it may benefit you and your timelines, you you tend to say, hey, you know, don't do that. Focus on this product. I think that's kind of a universal reality. Uh, we see it here as well. Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah, and and when it's something like pitching into, you know, for example. Um, we had one developer who jumped in and, and worked really hard on on some of the authentication and authorization code and was directly contributing that back to the, the framework or tool set. That's very obvious, right? He needs authentication and authorization, and it's not doing what he needs, so he's going to go fix it. And that fixes it for everybody, yes, but it fixes it for him, so it makes a lot of sense, right? It gets more challenging when it's, well, why, why are you doing this thing that doesn't necessarily affect you, right? Or doesn't affect us and, and what is that, right? And, and I think that this is just, isn't just about surfacing the visibility or, or getting people to buy in, is that people need to understand that, that things like Intersource is about leverage, right? Is you're able to leverage other people's, other people's software to, to move faster. Contributing back is, is really part of that, right? Is you're, you're enabling everybody to move faster by contributing back. But part of breaking down that barrier is, is really about bringing teams together earlier in the development process where people get better visibility into how design affects engineering and how product affects engineering and, and how two different teams may affect, you know, impact each other and, uh, you know, from a requirements perspective as well as from kind of common code base perspective, kind of building this more alongside building this kind of more componentized development environment is kind of opening up and understanding how dependencies kind of cross teams and are impacted is really important, I think, to that journey. Yeah, I, I think this is a one of these areas that's really developing in enterprises in particular, how to do internal collaboration in environments that have pressures that work against internal collaboration. That's probably a, a whole show we could do on that, so maybe I'll have to bring you back on for, for to discuss that at some point. Let's move back to technology because there's a couple other things I wanted to cover with you. One of them is you, I believe you're using Happy at HomeAway. Yeah. And you... So you paid, paid, at PayPal, the choice was to go with Express, although I know that there was some components built on Happy. But I know you're particularly enamored with Happy, so why don't you tell us about, about that and, and why you think it's a good choice? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many... Uh, there's very kind of... This, this is like one of those things that you, at night, you, you, you go out on the porch and you smoke cigars and you can go really down the rabbit hole on a lot of this. You know, part of the reason that we chose Express and and built Kraken at PayPal was because I would say, in a sense, because Happy didn't exist when we first started doing this, and when it did start to exist, it was still so early and still so unproven that it it became kind of a oh well that looks interesting but I don't know right and let's not invest in something that we don't know about or we we're not really sure of. Happy over the years has had not only many successes, but has just really matured in its 
capabilities and resilience. And really, at the end of the day, what I, I think is attractive about Happy is that, once again, it really makes it easy to componentize, right? Is that one of the challenges to something like Express is that functionality is, is often provided through things like middleware or routes, but it, it's hard to actually wrap those up and share them across teams. You need something to facilitate that. And it works with things like Kraken, where you can make it configuration-based and, and follow certain conventions. But even then, you're kind of hampered by a couple of different problems with how do you inject the right context into the, the kind of the life cycle of that configuration and, and so forth. And, and that really gets solved by a platform or a framework like Happy, where you have this, this plugin architecture that allows you to write a plugin that can add a route, it can just add lifecycle hooks, or it could do none of those things and just provide some additional configuration capabilities. And it made it really not a nice way to just kind of wrap it up and share these pieces of functionality to where you could literally just build, you know, an application could just be a collection of, of plugins and the application itself could just be a plugin that you, you plug into a common server. It has really a nice way of thinking about Componentizing and sharing software, and it provides a lot of different features just right out of the box. It has really nice integrated logging. It has a lot of the, the features that you're going to need right out of the box, like how you do things like you know authentication and authorization, and addressing a lot of those kind of enterprise operational concerns. That when you when you look at you know a very kind of stripped down and very simple web framework like Express, which is a fantastic framework, when you bring that into the enterprise, you're going to have to think about all these things that you're going to need to do and all these different libraries you're either going to need to find or make to make it work for your purposes. So that was really kind of the thinking there. It's helped us move so much faster and, and solve a lot of these problems. And Happy has, has been around for a little while now, but it, it's still it's still struggling to eat into the dominance of Express. In terms of download numbers, Express eclipses it by a long way. What's your analysis of the reason for that and why has Happy not been able to make as much inroads as it, as it has? You know, I, I think that the learning curve is a little bit steeper. There's a lot more to understand there. I, I think amazing work has gone into writing guides and, and documentation around Happy in, in the past you know, year or so. I think the community is, has grown and, and has really provided a, a lot better kind of help to people that are uh, looking to develop in it. But at the end of the day, so much of what is downloaded off of NPM is just by people working on either side projects or just playing around with something. And if you really want something to play around with, Express is just an obvious choice. It's just so straightforward and so easy. And you're probably not thinking about a lot of these things. So I think that when you look at, you know, if you're just an individual developer and you're looking at, looking at Happy, you're kind of like, why do I need all this? And it, it takes some time working at scale and, and solving really massive problems that you start to appreciate more complicated frameworks like Happy. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the my experience with Happy has always been the the steep learning curve has been a challenge. Historically, the documentation hasn't been great for people just diving in. How do I make something simple? Yeah, and they're not afraid to make breaking changes left and right. So, I mean, there's there's been so many major version bumps. I mean, it's already that version, you know, 16 or something, and Express is, 
has five come four, out? Four, is it still four? It's kind of remarkable in that sense is that there's been a lot of rapid development. They're not afraid to just pull the rug out from under you from a migration perspective and say, like, look, we're rewritten in this part and there's all these breaking changes. You're going to have to make those changes. But as a result, there's been a lot of innovation in it. And for a long time, a lot of that was fairly esoteric, but I think it's become a lot better. And those breaking changes, have they... The, the scope of them have they minimized over time, or is it still they're still a they, they've become because... much much lessened over time. So, okay, so at first, there was, at first there was some sound. pretty That's, pretty that... traumatic changes. You mentioned PayPal and, and Happy is that PayPal is primarily Express, but one of our internal tools, which is Kappa, which is a, an npm proxy, that for a long time kind of enterprise level npm support was pretty uh, non-existent. So. This Kappa project was written basically to provide just proxying to, to NPM and, and as well as an internal repo and served a, a lot, of, lot of traffic over the years. And that was happy. And at times we, you know, when upgrading, it was sometimes kind of a, a pain, a pain point to go and migrate it. But that, that definitely did minimize over time. As painful as updating a Linux desktop, for example. So you're not, because <laughs> that sounds like a an anti-recommendation. Like, um, well, no, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do, I absolutely recommend it for building really hardened applications, right? And the, the fact is, is that if you don't understand what that means, then you probably aren't worried about it, right? But if, if you do understand what that means, then it's something that you should definitely be looking at. Yeah, I think yeah for for teams that are starting out, I think it's worthwhile. Is it, do you think for for people coming from say Java learning Node, is is there a difference between learning to write for Happy versus Express? Yeah, there are some minor. I mean, there's even some you know minor convention differences. Obviously, it's a wildly different framework, so that makes it quite different. But there are different conventions. You know, Express, um, for example. When you're interacting with a request, it's the same as if you just created a HTTP server and just interacted with the request. Whereas with Happy, it is wrapped request. It's it's kind of response is kind of buried, and then you have this reply interface. And it's a little bit of a different convention than what you would learn from kind of Node Core documentation. And then, you know, some of the things like the way that it, it binds functions and some of the... when when you pass things like you know your, your handlers or what have you, it will bind some context into them generally, and, and that can obviously be affected by things like using error functions or what have you. So there's yeah. some things that, you, you, that you'll either not know about or find surprising when you encounter them, and there are some differences there. Well, they're surprising if you are if you've been doing Node development already. That's 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 the thing I'm I'm trying to get at here, which is that Express feels like Node Core, like it's like an extension of Node Core, and it's like you could you could basically have the Node Core docs up beside the Express docs, and they they complement each other. Happy takes a different approach, and I'm wondering if it feels more like somebody who, who coming from Spring, for example, you know, the history in Spring. I, I haven't done Spring for a long time myself, but it, it, it does seem to me like Happy offers something there that is similar to what people might be used to coming from Java world in particular. Yeah, you know, I, I would I would be very hesitant to say something like that. I, I don't think that... that <laughs> you, you just don't want to tar it with the spring brush, do you? Oh, yeah, no, but I mean, I, you know, I think that, that Happy doesn't really feel like anything else. It is Aaron had or has... Rather a uh, you know a, a unique style, and I love for example just when you when you look at Happy Code 
one of the things you'll just be surprised by in general in their examples as well as their source code is just the code style, right? Which is something that, you know, if you look at a lot of node core code and you look at Express or something like that, it'll look very much the same, just even at a, you know, syntax style level. Whereas Happy is very different and it has like these kind of interesting conventions that applies to the way that it structures its code. And that's actually one of the things that actually affected the way I write code, even when I'm not writing happy code, is picking up a lot of those styles that I thought I really liked. You're not capitalizing your imports, are you? I do. Oh, oh, oh that hurts. <laughs> and, and so I know that that sounds really weird, right? No, I, I understand the reason for it. It's, but it's navigating to make it, large yeah. code bases, I found it so useful to know exactly where something came from. Yeah. Look, I, I appreciate that about, about Aaron. He's not afraid to form his own opinions and walk a, a different path. And that, and that comes from a, a place of thinking very clearly about some of these things. So I, I appreciate that a lot of those design decisions come from almost a blank slate type, type of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first looked at some of that syntax, I, my first response was, yuck. And, <laughs> and then I started kind of encountering it more and more and started to kind of be like, ah, I kind of like that, actually. And I think it came from I, I was working on Kappa at one point and, and, and just doing some some work on it. And I was following kind of a happy convention. And I was kind of like, ah, I don't really like this. And then I started to be kind of like, ah, I kind of like this. <laughs> and so there, kind of a, I adjust my thinking on it. I would say that, you know, happy does feel distinctly different, but it, it's just different than Node Core, right? It's, it's really it's kind of its own thing. What you end up getting at within happy is, is often – many of the, the same things you would expect from a, kind of a typical node project, but there's just been a, a different type of thinking applied to it that is really unique and just kind of feels a, a little bit different. So I, I don't think that it's unnode-like. It kind of stands on its own as this kind of different offshoot of programming styles and that I've, I've actually really come to appreciate. Yeah, that's fair. Look, I, I think that the recommendation stands for people to, who are in, at this decision point to check it out and seriously consider it. Aaron Hammer is, is, is really kind of the reason why I stopped using IDEs for development because of his, just some of what I kind of heard about his, his opinions on how to, you know, or not just his opinions, but how he actually practiced debugging by staring at code and staring at core dumps and just trying to run it in his head, which I, I used to, when I first heard about, I rolled my eyes at and thought that he was showing off or something. And then I actually kind of evolved the same way. I, I started kind of trying to get closer to that code and closer to thinking about being able to understand what I was reading as opposed to just using step-through debuggers and things like that. So I think that that, that is reflected actually in, in what you see about those, those choices of how it's been put together. Yeah, it's it, it certainly got a very intentional philosophy behind it. The, the whole happy ecosystem is very intentional. I appreciate that because it's, it's as, as opposed to organic, which you see in Express. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Relying on users to report them, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster, with a lot less noise. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployment in a few minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks, Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, Node. 
You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send alerts to Slack or HipChat, create new issues in Jira or Trello, and link your GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab repos. We have a special offer for NodeUp listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. I know we're going a bit over time, but one more technology thing I wanted to get into was GraphQL. I see this as a one of these emerging technologies that could potentially be extremely important in the coming years. And you're using it a bit at HomeAway. Can you talk about how you're using it and some of the successes you're having? Absolutely, yeah. So this is one of the technologies that I've, I've become really, really excited about. And, and I first heard about GraphQL when I was still working at PayPal and I was at uh, JSConf a couple of years, I guess it was like three years ago, probably. It wasn't the last ill-fated PayPal JSConf attendance, but it was, it was one of those. And Facebook presented on GraphQL and Relay, and it sounded really interesting. I think a lot of people got really, really excited about it. But for our part, we were kind of like, yeah, this looks really cool, but we don't know, you know, they haven't open sourced it yet. We don't really know much about it. And I kind of kind of put it aside and forgot about it. And it was like, I'm just going to you know, put that back in the oven and let it mature. When this came up again for me here, it was really about looking at the way that things have been architected, especially in the kind of legacy way of doing things. And to kind of give you a brief idea of that, that setup is that the way the web applications were developed here over the past couple of years was that you had a spring, a fairly lightweight Java spring application that served you a, a page. And then you had that pieces of that page would go back and call a essentially what, what they kind of was like a orchestration service, which was an, another different, a different service, not the, the application that served it. And that would go and make all these different calls to older legacy APIs and, and so forth, and then take XML and turn it into JSON or, you know, make multiple calls or what have you. And it just kind of provide that orchestration. And, and really that pattern is very much kind of, you know, that, that kind of that BFF or, you know, back end for front end pattern. And part of the reason for that was, okay, well, let's figure out a way that we could share these common, I have this, I have this common need to go and make these different service calls and reshape this data this way. Let's share that through by make, standing up this new service and now we can share it, you know, share the same code base or same service to do that work and that business logic is encapsulated. But then you start running into, you know, issues where you go, okay, well, now I have these web pages, but I also have mobile experiences. And how do I, they need a slightly different thing, so they're going to do it a slightly different way. And you start winding up with this, this complexity, especially as you start to need to change these services or you're needing to take these services and move them to the public cloud versus your private data center. And when that dependency moves, how does it affect other applications or other UI components and, and so forth? And if you look at something like GraphQL, it's really largely what it was designed for. If you go back to the kind of the original presentation by Facebook is really they're talking about like we have all this UI development, all this UI components that are being kind of developed across the company. And we don't necessarily understand how changes that we make to our services may impact that, right? If we, if we decide that we're going to deprecate something understanding who is actually impacted becomes really difficult, right? Or if you if you want to be able to 
do what we're doing, which is migrating, you don't understand how applications may be impacted as well. So we started looking at GraphQL really to, to solve a couple of different problems. One was that we wanted to make it easier for mobile and web experiences to interact with the same data sources with different model needs, right? So a one field may be needed by web that, that mobile simply doesn't need and they don't want to get it and then have to discard it. So one of one of us about that kind of that orchestration that the, the shaping of the data, which GraphQL lends itself to really, really well. And then the other part was about insulating UI components from change, being able to more easily change how that request is resolved without necessarily impacting the code base of that component. And then also being able to enable this, this sharing of the code bases by being able to take GraphQL types and the resolvers for those types and then actually break them up into these you know, fragments, so to speak, and then you know, potentially bundle them with the UI component that is interacting with them or standalone and be able to kind of bring them all together to kind of self-orchestrate an application. So it makes it very easy to interact with as opposed to, for example, taking a route where you have an AJAX endpoint that a UI component relies upon and having to either encapsulate that as a route or you know, tell somebody that they need to write a route to the spec of that UI, you simply can drop in this, this GraphQL fragment that will resolve any query from that UI. And so it's part, it's part of that component, componentization story, isn't it, where you, you're pushing down further into the stack with your components? Right, and, it, and it's very easy to, I mean, the, the componentization strategy there isn't a out-of-the-box thing. It, that, that support exists through tooling, but you know, typically most of the examples that you're going to see around GraphQL is like, okay, well, here's how you write your GraphQL server, and here you know, write a bunch of types and write your resolvers, and you know, put them in this this schema, and then expose that on this route. It will call the GraphQL server and, and do its thing. What was really, I think, important in making that a, a success here uh, and a successful way of of doing this data orchestration is by being able to break it up into components and bring them together you know, ad hoc, right? So UI components will always talk back to the application that served them, whatever applications that's, that, that application server is serving up will automatically have that, that data orchestration provided for them through those GraphQL fragments. How much of the GraphQL story do you think is about this trend of pushing our complexity to, to the front of our applications? Because that's essentially what we're doing these days where it's the UI that's the by far the most complex part of our applications. And then we're slowly draining our backends of complexity to just become these dumb data stores and data services. Is GraphQL playing into that? Is that what it's about or is that just a, a side thing? Actually, I, I, would, I would argue that it plays into it in many, in many ways less. It actually it successfully encapsulates complexity. And often when it comes to GraphQL that complexity is primarily in the resolver. So the resolver is a server-side piece, right? It's just the function that gets called given a particular query that's going to go out and execute either some HTTP call or read from a database or even return just static data or what have you. And that resolver is really responsible for going and doing the data fetching parts. The GraphQL query language and the parser will be responsible for basically saying, you know, you only ask for a user's first name and last name, so I'm going to ensure that even though a backend service returns something large or I've trimmed all that out for what I send over the wire, right? So you've got that 
efficiency. Now, normally, if if you were to do that with just typical AJAX call, you're either having to do that on the front end where there will be additional complexity, or you're going to have to do that on the back end in your route for that AJAX call, which is you know going to be kind of just not in, encapsulated in a nice way. And you know, furthermore, when you start to work with technologies like React, where you have server-side and client-side rendering, is then you're going to have to be able to differentiate between those. How, how do you make the server-side render versus the client-side render when you're doing kind of typical AJAX? And, and there's a little bit of complexity there. What I've seen in, in general application development is, is that fairly large, complicated apps, when you look at their code bases, there is, there is so much work being done in the, the handlers on the server side to orchestrate data for the UI components. And then there's a lot of complexity in the, in the UI components to take advantage of that data. And then when you, when you move to actually a kind of, we start to break things down into GraphQL for orchestration and using things like Redux for state management, and then having these kind of React components and even like React Router 4, which starts to actually break down things like routing into the component level, it actually makes for much cleaner applications that are that are actually less complex. Right. So your your front end complexity is reduced because you're having to worry less about the shape of the data that you're dealing with because you're getting exactly what you want. Yeah. And the complexity is invested in that middle piece of of how to pull things together and form it into that shape that you need. Right. And preferably, you know, you have a finite number of services and you kind of get to the point where you, you've defined most of these things are, are either, you know, part of a, you know, standard kind of core modules or um, things that have not even been developed by that application developer. So from the application developer's perspective, they're just saying npm install this GraphQL fragment npm install this UI component or whatever, and they're just kind of dropping it into their application and it, it glues itself together. Right. It seems to me that GraphQL is really serving the needs of these complex data sources and mixed data sources as well. Like you, you, you're pulling data these days from so many different places to put them into one form. It seems like GraphQL is is almost the perfect solution to that that problem. So it seems like it's an obvious place for people to invest time in learning at least uh, to see if it's applicable to their to their domain. I think even with seeing very well-known companies like GitHub that have these very rich APIs and then they provide GraphQL APIs as well, is I, I think you're going to start seeing that trend more and more even for APIs, right, is where the way that we expose data to the outside world will be often through a GraphQL interface, which is just so easy to reason about and to play with through these interactive tools like their GraphQL tool and be able to kind of just play within an API and understand information about the data that's its shape and how you want to shape your query and then make those requests. So I think we're going to start actually seeing that more and more, not only for UIs, but APIs as well. Right. That's a good segue actually into just some final thoughts. Wondering if I could get your thoughts on the future of, you know, particularly where you are at the moment, the, the, the sphere that you're operating in, aside from GraphQL. What do you think are the emerging trends or the things that people should be paying attention to that are coming up? Oh, if anything, I mean, sometimes sometimes it's difficult to see that far forward, but sometimes we really see these big shifts coming in, and I think React represented one of those, and GraphQL seems to be another one. Um, is there anything else? You know, I, I think that the the ones you mentioned are are definitely ones we've already talked about. I think that what we're going to start seeing more of are more 
microservice architectures that are backed by Node.js. I think that in so many ways, Node lends itself really well to developing very you know small microservices. You see that through things like Amazon Lambda, right, and many of these different kind of implementations of just you know single function services that are written in JavaScript. And I think that just in general, it lends itself well to microservices that are often about just I/O concerns, right? They typically are not doing tons of heavy lifting, and, and things like Node.js become very, very fast. Unless it's doing some really, really heavy lifting, it's probably fast enough. And so I, I think there's going to be a continued kind of emerging uh, development of where you have application teams who are writing their applications in in Node, and then deciding they're going to turn around and write their services in Node as well. So I, I think that is in a, a kind of an emerging trend. We've we've you know thought about it a little bit as well, as well as you know experimenting with it at PayPal. But I, I don't think it's really taken off quite yet. But I th- I think it's getting there. And, and does that include technologies like Kubernetes and other containerized service architectures? Yeah, I, I mean, as far as when it comes to things like Kubernetes for how you orchestrate deployment. I think that we'll start to see you know tools like that definitely used to help get these kind of microservice meshes up. I think that we're going to see that more and more. I think as people move to Internet of Things and and these very small, tiny services, we're going to continue to see that kind of that line of thinking of of things like single operation services, mesh, self discovery. You're seeing that a lot with things like the kind of a, autopilot patterns and gossip protocols and and whatnot. So I think that we're going to see that continue to emerge as a uh, kind of an interesting kind of next frontier for technologies like just JavaScript in general to be very, very successful. Right. Actually, I've heard Aaron Hammond talk about this a bit, but the the whole idea of microservices and and just small services in general is that you are, you're making an explicit trade-off in complexity. You're saying that I'm going to accept complexity in my deployment architecture in order to gain simplicity in my application architecture. That's a, I think, you know, diving into that, you've got to really weigh that up. But there's, a, I think, a lot of wins to get there, particularly with node-style modular development. Yeah, I mean, this this has kind of gone back to, this kind of so, so in line with a lot of my recent thinking is just about how we need to get back to the root of what we're trying to do when we build software which is if you're building a service you know you're you've been asked for something and you're returning it and how do you how do you strip everything else away about how it got there and you know how it was deployed and and what have you and really get down just to thinking in terms of really the business value you're adding as a developer and just thinking about how do i implement that and really not having to worry about the rest. And yeah, it, it definitely takes, you know, you, you can't remove complexity, you're just moving it somewhere else. But I think that we're moving it to the right places by reducing complexity in the, the actual software development. Right, yeah, no, that's a really interesting perspective. So for people getting into the industry, we've talked a bit about Silicon Valley versus the alternatives, but uh, people getting that are new into it, wanting to dive deeper into Node and the areas that are taking off, do you have any general advice one of the reasons I, I'm particularly interested in your advice is that you're operating in an area where the, the bulk of the jobs are. We tend to focus in, in particularly Node Up, but these sort of Node 
community space, we tend to focus more on, you know, these sort of startup-y, hackery type places. But Node is becoming so much more important in the enterprise. And the majority of Node job, jobs are now shifting to enterprise. With that in mind, do you have any thoughts for people getting into the industry? Specifically with getting into big industry? I, I, yeah, I think, I think so. Because, uh, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of jobs there and they're, they're stable jobs. They may not be sometimes as exciting as startups, but they're quality jobs. One of the things I've always found exciting about software development in general is just solving problems, right? And you're not going to encounter more interesting problems than you're going to encounter in the enterprise. You know, it may sound surprising, but it, it is super fun to go to a startup and, and build some new new thing that you, you get to use the latest technology and, and what have you, right? But actually taking that from getting zero requests per day to getting a million requests today and then getting that up to 500 million requests per day takes some serious solutioning, right? It, it really requires much broader problem solving and really uh, a lot of deep thought about how to architect these kind of solutions. So it's actually Enterprise always sounds so boring. You think you think IBM, you think ties and button-down shirts, and the reality is is that you know Facebook is an enterprise, Google is an enterprise, Amazon is the enterprise, right? It's all the cutting-edge technologies are often already an enterprise, and there's no shortage of really interesting problems to solve there. And and a lot of the people that I've encountered is that the advice is not so much about how to get into that because it's fairly you know if you're if you're smart and you're driven and know what you're doing you're going to get into this industry fairly easily but it's about understanding that you can bring every bit of that that passion for engineering and software development into the boring old enterprise and be very successful and find a lot of opportunities to to fix things and improve things and that's always kind of been I used to kind of say about PayPal is that you, if you throw a stone, you're going to find a problem with something, but that can either represent a frustration or it can represent a massive opportunity to go and build things. And so if you, if you always kind of like lean towards that kind of that positive aspect of it is, is that you get to have a lot of fun and you get a lot of opportunities to do problem solving. You wouldn't necessarily recommend formal education, obviously, but how does one go about these days building enough expertise to um, land a quality job or... Just, do you just need to find your own path? You know, unfortunately, I think that probably the majority of companies still value degrees probably more than they should. They still look at that a lot. But I think that more and more are coming around to alternatives to that those degrees. So I think that people who have engaged in things like Maker Square is a uh, you know small company that that, that provides you, you basically it's people who want to change careers and get into technology and it, you go through this very kind of intensive training and you come out of it and ready to work. I think that there's been a lot of success there. I think people companies are starting to look at that more. I think it, companies are starting to look more at people's open source contributions and the projects they've worked on because it so often tells you a lot more about how somebody develops software than really than anything else. You know, I think that although a degree is valuable, I like to think that the more involved in, in just building things and, and getting out there and, and being in public, that's starting to provide a lot of weight to resumes. And I think that also just communities have gotten closer together. If you look at Slack communities like WeAllJS and others, 
there's people who post on job boards and there's really an opportunity to network, get to know each other and get recommendations for jobs and, and that sort of thing. So it's a good environment. It's a good, these are good times for employees. It's very much an employee's market these days. It's a lot easier, I think, to, to kind of get exposure and get into, get in front of an employer than it, than it used to be. So any final thoughts on how you consume your technology news or do you have favorite authors or conferences or books or anything that you would like to recommend? You know, I, I follow all the, the usual people on Twitter and Medium. There's so many good things to, to come across on, on. Yeah, Medium's really taking off these days in terms of node, node stuff. Yeah, I was always finding great, just fantastic articles there. I've actually started to look at a lot of other things like whether it's Reddit or uh, Y Combinator and Hacker News, right? You know, it's, it's the, uh, the those things I've actually started to look at less because I'm just discovering so much just through, you know, the people I follow on Twitter and, and on Medium. And just once you start, you know, getting recommendations on Medium, it's awesome because you just find like one article after another about, you know, GraphQL or what have you. So that's pretty much been it for me these days. That's a, that's a good recommendation. I get more than I can stand to read even. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there. Um, it's been a great interview. I've uh, really enjoyed this. So how can people find you? Is it best to find you on Twitter or have you got another location? I'm definitely on Twitter. That's probably the, the easiest way to find me. It's uh, T Livings is my username. Cool. Um, well, I hope, hope people reach out to you with questions about some of the things we've, we've talked today. Talked about today. Thanks for joining us and everyone, thanks for listening in. Like Note Up on Twitter. Leave a review in the iTunes podcast store because that uh, really helps the, the, the ratings. And thank you very much, Trevor, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye now.